0: And I'm going to be today in the book of Luke, chapter number 15. And I want you to join me if you've got your Bible, if you've got your phone. I'm going to be in Luke 15. We'll have it on the screen for your reading as well. I had a good time with this in the first gathering. It got sloppy good. But rather than trying to duplicate the same... Environment and the same energy and the same atmosphere. I want to just mind the Lord and 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 give you what He's put on my radar to deliver today. I never want to be one of those preachers that gets up and promotes self or gets up with a soapbox or some personal-driven agenda. I've he- I've heard a lot of them, man. That, they get up, they rant, they rave. They're all about their opinion and their ideas. But when it comes to the work, they couldn't work at Pizza Hut. They can't deliver. They just ain't, they, they just, they just ain't going to deliver the goods, but they're going to get up and tell you about them and what they think and this. I, I want to know what God thinks about this world, what God thinks about my life, and I've, I've got a vested interest this morning in his word. Somebody say Amen. I love Luke chapter 15. Jesus is aiming everything he's saying, everything you and I are about to digest that's written in red, he's aiming it right at a religious group called the Pharisees and the scribes. And basically, they're just, they're murmuring, Luke says, because this man, this supposed Christ, this Messiah, Jesus, is eating with sinners. They, they have they have witnessed him him hanging out with the bottom rung of the totem pole yeah, yeah. on society. and they are murmuring about his actions. And so Jesus, always unharnessed and unfiltered, rears back and slaps them with some illustrative truth and in and in chapter fifteen. He introduces us to a story about a young man who grew up in a wealthy home, and the young man in a rebellious spirit, in a defiant spirit, goes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance, and I want it right now. Now, in a Jewish custom and culture, that's the equivalent of telling your dad, I wish you were dead so I could get my stuff. So the father divides his inheritance and gives his portion to the son. And the Bible tells us that the son immediately goes to a foreign country and takes everything that was rightfully his by way of 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 his inheritance and blows it. And I mean, the Bible even says he wasted it on riotous living. Now, let's be clear. This boy has not taken all of this wealth and ran to Chuck E. Cheese and Phenopolis for a good time. He's not sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck up at Walmart putting out the vibe. This boy has plunged himself into the low depths of stupidity And I can't even, with kids in the room, begin to really expound upon the realities of his decision making. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? He blows all the money. Runs out of it. Squanders everything his daddy gave him. Ends up working for a guy who owns a farm that lives in that country. Jewish men... Working with swine is the lowest of the lows by ways of degradation. He is so broke, he is so poor, he is so bad off that he has now succumbed to actually eating out of the pig's trough. And he's eyeing this half-eaten corn cob. And Jesus tells us as he is about to partake, of the swine supper. Verse 17, we'll pick it up right there. Notice what Jesus says about this boy. And when he came to himself, daddy did not raise a fool. When he came to himself, he said, I love how the inner monologue is shared with us. He said, how many hired servants of my father's are back at the house right now with bread enough and to spare, and I'm sitting here starving to death. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called a son. Just just let me get minimum wage working as a farmhand. So he's going to go with that story. That's a story. He's going to stick to it. Bible says in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the guillotine. Bring forth the pitchforks and the torches. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Heck, let's throw a party, guys. Bring hither the fat cow and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. There's there's something refreshing about coming home after you've been gone for a while. Even being gone 8, 10, 12 hours during the day at work, there's just something peaceful about knowing you get to come back home. Push pause and eject yourself from the madness that is our world and be able to come back to the security of your own home. Even when you go on vacation, and that's what everybody's wanting to do around this time of year, Five days, six days, seven days, as wonderful as it, it is, as wonderful as it is, a checkout, go off the grid and enjoy vacation, you gotta admit, eventually what? You wanna come back home. It's always something refreshing about being able to come back home. Depending on how far you were away, how long you were gone, all of those things are factors on how big of a difference a homecoming really makes. Hey, if you want to give yourself a really, really good ugly, ugly cry, go on YouTube and type in Soldier Homecoming Compilation and watch these men and women who have been on duty On foreign soil or overseas and watch them come back. People set this up in video where they come back home and they surprise their parents. They surprise a spouse. They surprise their kids. You will ugly cry in the living room at 10 p.m. all by yourself when ain't nobody but God and the devil watching. You will sit there and weep like a baby. You You don't even have to watch the ones where they come back and interact with human beings. Watch the ones where they come back and the dog sees them. The dog dog thinks that they have just completely went out of space and forgotten about him, and they come back home, and the dog is losing it. You'll be sitting there ugly crying, sobbing on your MacBook Pro. There's something wonderful about coming back home, and that's what happens to this boy. In verse 17, it says he comes to himself. I love this. Oh, my God, I relate. He comes to his senses. It's like all of a sudden the elevator has went to the top. And the light has come on. Something inside of him has snapped in a good way. And he recognizes the atrocity of his situation the gravity of his mistake, and he realizes I am so far and so gone, and I could be at the house, I could be eating supper at daddy's table, I could be in the comforts of my own home with my family under my father's blessing, and I'm out here living like an idiot. I'm as bad as it gets. I'm as low as it gets, and he comes to himself. Isn't it interesting that sometimes it takes the stupidest situations to make us come to our senses. Isn't it crazy that sometimes rock bottom is where we need to be to finally look up? Who am I talking to? Does anybody know what I'm preaching this morning? This boy comes to himself, and in a moment of honesty, we get to see the veil pulled back, and we see the transparency of his heart, and Jesus tells us that this boy, in a sense, says there's no place like home there's just no place like home and i know we i know we contribute that phrase to dorothy and her silly slippers as she wished her way back to canvas and tapped it three times and said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Yet this boy didn't need any red slippers and he didn't need the aid of Glinda, the good witch of the west or east or wherever she was from or north. The Bible teaches and tells us that despite how far he was and how gone he had become, that he came to himself and he exclaimed in all truth, there's no place like home. Now, I believe there are people in this room, you have had your rebellious streak, you have sowed your wild oats, even after joining the family of God, maybe like me, there's been a time when you ventured way off in the wrong direction and you ended up in a foreign country. You ended up wasted. That can mean whatever it needs to mean to you. And you ended up rock bottom, face down, empty of yourself. A riotous lifestyle has now upended you in a place where you've bankrupted your soul and your spirit and you've broken severed ties and you've made a mess of your situation. You made the bed, you rolled over it, laid in it, you camped out there. And the reality is, is you wonder, can I come back from this? I want to tell you. I don't care how low you went. I don't care how far you went. I don't care how dirty you got. I don't care how much corn you ate. I don't care how many pigs you hung out with. I don't care how much mud you got on you. There's a father waiting back at the house that brought me over here today to tell you, you can always come back. I'll tell you why you can come back. Because there's no place like home. Can I get an amen and can I get a witness? If you know father wants his boy back many of us in this room have experienced a homecoming return we've experienced a homecoming return this boy said wait a second what am i doing here what am i doing my my, my father has servants who've got bread enough And despair. They are they are scraping crumbs into a wastebasket as I sit here and starve to death. A privileged benefactor of a wealthy father, and I'm living like a servant. I'll go back to my dad and I will say, Watch this. I have sinned. Notice. The wording that he chooses to use. He doesn't come back with some agenda that's looking to pass the buck or shift the blame. He's not coming back to halfway apologize. I love this voice reaction, and this is what happens with true biblical repentance. You not only acknowledge the reality of where you are, you acknowledge the reality of how you got there, and he owned, watch this, 100 percent of the issue you ever had somebody you ever had somebody say something to you and they hurt your feelings or you had a falling out with them and then, and then they, they, said, they said this to you they begin to apologize on, on a customized delivery with I'm sorry you feel that way they start off with I'm sorry oh they're leaning in to their fault yet they wrap up The other side of that equation with, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, or I'm sorry what I said hurt you, not I'm sorry what I said, not I'm sorry what I did, I'm sorry I hurt you. The problem with somebody like that is they're refusing to own 100% of the fault. True confession, true repentance, here we go, a true turnaround and comeback begins with a return in the mind a return in the heart, a return with the attitude and the spirit of an individual that has, here we go, Paul says, Godly sorrow. I'm not talking about sorry for what happened. I'm not talking about sorry because I got caught. I'm not talking about sorry because I got muddy. I'm not talking about sorry because it happened this way. I'm talking about I'm sorry. I'm the reason I'm out here. I'm the reason this took place. I'm the reason I'm filthy. I'm the reason I'm starving. And he owned 100% of the issue. The Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Not a worldly sorrow, not circumstantial sorrow, not emotional sorrow, a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow where you become disgusted with the reality of your sin. Notice I didn't say mistake. I didn't say blunder, I didn't say boo-boo. Let's call it for what it is, ladies and gentlemen, it's sin. It's atrocious, it's offensive, it's ugly, it's not okay with God. Sin is not okay with God. God died for sin, God is holy, God cannot tolerate sin, he cannot look upon sin. And here's the deal, sons and daughters still sin. I remember thinking when I got saved that I would be exempt from stupidity. Nobody told me, nobody read the fine print that after you get born into this family, adopted by the grace of God, marvelous in the Father's sight, and I become a joint heir with Christ, and I become a son of God, you become a son, a daughter of God. Nobody ever really told me, hey, you're still going to be a little screwed up. You're still going to make some mistakes. And I wasn't prepared. I was not prepared for the depths of my dumb on this side of being a son. Am I talking to anybody in this room? Y'all looking at me real religious-like. Y'all didn't bring any rocks with you. And this boy makes a return. He, he, he has something in him, a, a repentance, that is willing to agree with God about the way his situation is, that he's at fault, and he will go back. This takes guts. I will go back, and I will just own it. I'm not going to try to bargain, strike a deal. I'm not going to push blame on him. I'm not going to blame him for giving me the money. I'm not going to blame the elder brother for making me always feel rejected. I'm not going to blame you for catering to him or favoring me. I'm not going to blame anything. I'm not going to blame the pigs. I'm not going to blame the owner of the farm. I'm not going to blame the foreign country. I'm not going to blame the hookers. I'm not going to blame the drug dealers. I'm not going to blame nobody. It's me. It's me. And he goes back and returns. And the Bible says he arose. He arose and we see a homecoming reunion unfold. He arose and he came to his father. Now, I've always pictured this where he's on his way back to the house and he's got a little speech scribbled out on the palm of his hand. Father, I have sinned. Against you and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called a son. Make me as a servant. Okay. And he's just rehearsing this the whole time. He's got it in his mind, and he's going to go back, and he's going to tell daddy everything he did and everything he's owning. He's got this speech, and the Bible says that while he was on his way to the house, that the father saw him when he was yet a great way off. Now, what that tells me by way of biblical observation is that the dad was looking for the boy. That means, and I've always pictured this, that the father was sitting on the porch, scanning the horizon every day, at morning, at noon, at evening, and right before bed, looking across the horizon of that wealthy property, seeing if his son, today was the day, this was the time that his son would come back home. And the Bible says that while he was yet a great way off, the father saw him. Do you know what I believe? There were times when that boy was living it up and going down. And while he was, that dad was never a thought in his mind not even an afterthought as he did all the things he did there was never a thought of the daddy in his mind yet i believe while that son was out there plunging himself into a world of darkness i believe that daddy never lost sight of his son i believe he always had his boy on his mind i believe the father was still setting that boy's place at the table i believe he still had all his pictures up in the living room i believe he never packed up his room i believe he still had that boy's stuff still had his bed made still waiting, still kneeling by his bedside and praying for his boy, calling his name in prayer. I believe the father never forgot about the son, even when the son forgot about the father. And I want to tell you, I don't give a flip where you've been. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how bad you've messed up. I don't know who I'm preaching to, but somebody needs to hear this. There's a daddy sitting on the front porch and he still has you on his mind. He's still thinking about you today. There's nowhere like going to take you no depth to the hog lot, no dirt on your mind. There's nothing in your life that ever made God forget about you. Can I have somebody in this room help me rejoice? If you know I got a daddy who's still looking for me, and his eyes are on the sparrow, he's watching for his son, and he's watching for his daughter. Oh, my. While he was yet a great way off, the father saw him. He's coming down that dusty dirt road, rehearsing his speech. Come on. Come on, Michael. Help me out. He's coming down that dirt road, rehearsing his speech, got it on the palm of his hand. And the Bible says that the father saw him, took off from the front porch, ran to where this boy is. Now, if I have done what this boy has done, if I have taken full advantage of my father, taken his benefits and his investment and his inheritance for granted, I am worried about my father's reaction. I've always pictured this in my mind, the boy on his way to the house, not knowing that the father is looking and expecting him. And as he's coming to the house, the father lights off the porch. He begins to run. We'll paint this out in slow motion, like J.J. J. Abrams and Jerry Bruckheimer, slow motion. And, and the son notices that the father is heading that boy's direction. And this boy's never seen his daddy run. He's never ran from nothing. And now he's running to the, and he's pointing at this kid, and he's hollering and running. And this kid thinks, my God, I need to go back to where I came from. Daddy's going to kill me. The Bible says that as he got to him, that he fell on him. Now, I want you to push pause right there, and I want you to hear this. Two things we need to note about the custom and the culture of this day and age. One, a grown Jewish man doesn't run, not in public. For a Jewish man to run in public, to run at all. He would have to lift up his tunic, his outer garment, lift it up in order to run. Thereby, lifting it up above the knees, he would then expose the upper thigh. According to the law and Jewish culture, to show the upper thigh would be considered nakedness, and nakedness was a sin. So the man, the father, therefore would have shamed himself. At the expense of the son. For the son to take the family inheritance from his father while his father was alive, to go into a foreign country, waste it in the manner that he did, then have the audacity to come back to the very community that he rejected and the family that he left would have been a shame and it would have been like a warrant upon his head. The religious crowd and the religious leaders would have lined the streets of that community with rocks in religious indignation and judgment to stone the accused and the offender. And the Bible says that before the boy could get to the home, Before the shamed son could return, the father ran to meet him. Context, to meet him outside of the city. The father willingly took upon him shame so that the shamed son, my God, so that the shamed son could still be accepted at the Father's bidding and he, he beat the religious crowd that would have judged him, condemned him, killed him. And the Bible says when he got to him, he fell on him and embraced him. Now... And he fell on him. It was the father's way of saying, if you're gonna stone him, my God, I'm about to take a lap with Michael (laughs) McCrone. It was the father's way of saying, if you're going to kill him, if you're going to condemn him, if you're going to execute him, you're going to have to start by destroying me to get to my boy. I wonder if there's any son or daughter in this room that can help me rejoice. We serve a father that was willing to leave the property and cover his own for the sake of our shame. God. He came after me. He ran to me. He covered me. Bless his holy name. I say bless his holy name. He fell on that boy. He embraced him and he kissed him. An act a demonstration. Watch this. Don't miss this. He's ran, he has demonstrated a father's love by protecting his son, by meeting his son halfway, by showing signs of endearment and acceptance, by kissing him. And as the father's, don't miss this, as the father is lavishing the son with this love, the son says, Hold up. Wait a second. I got something you need to hear. In fact, I'm not worthy of this love. I cannot be lavish with this love. While the dad is pouring it on, the son says, "I'm not worthy." Get away from me. I can't come back as a son. I don't deserve this love. I don't deserve this family. I don't deserve your goodness. I don't deserve another dollar ever. It's scary that while God is pouring on the grace, the mercy, and the love when we come back, we are so caught up with a homecoming rehearsal that is driven by shame. It, it's, it's, it's very scary that the boy was so blinded to being accepted that he was bent on being rejected. And his rehearsal was laced in the poison of self-condemnation. I can't. You, uh, you, do you not smell where I've been? Do you not see this mud upon my clothing? Do you not see the pig feces upon my feet? Can you not see the life I've lived in the last six months upon my face and under my eyes? Can you not smell the alcohol on my breath? Can you not see the needle marks in my arms? Can you not tell? Do you know I left in one condition, but I came back in another? Can you not tell? I'm not worthy to be a part of this family anymore. You You know how ludicrous that is? You want to know how ludicrous that is? Let me tell you how ludicrous that is. That's the equivalent of being charged and convicted of a crime you committed. And you're guilty. And you have gone before this judge. And this judge based on the evidence that your lawyer presented in court he declares you not guilty he's never going to confess, okay, he's never going to declare you as innocent because you're not you've never been innocent but instead of declaring you in guilt based on the evidence a lawyer presents he declares you not guilty and you, you rise from your seat, you slam your hand down the table, you push your lawyer aside and you say, no judge, I am guilty despite what you say, despite your ruling, I'm guilty, I deserve jail, I deserve execution, take me away. And the judge says, I've made my ruling. Based on the branches of our government and the authority in our judicial system, I as the judge in this case, have ruled you not guilty. You push away from the table, you walk out of the courtroom, and you go live a life like you were declared guilty. You break into the jail to live there. You go get on death row and get you a spot in line. It'd be ludicrous, wouldn't it? What's more ludicrous than that Is a son or daughter standing before their father who is the judge who knows that they're not innocent but based on the evidence provided by the lawyer Jesus Christ the evidence being his blood 2,000 years ago on a cross and an empty tomb that sealed your justification Based on that evidence and that evidence alone, he declares you not guilty, pardons you, exonerates you of all charges, sets you free, seals the documents, and you refuse to live in the ruling of his court. We can't wrap our minds around that kind of mercy and that kind of love. And because we can't understand it, we reject it. At what point did faith stop being a part of your relationship with God? If you have to accept by faith that he died for you, rose for you, and is willing to save you, you also have to accept by faith that he does more than tolerate you during this relationship. Because church, let me tell you why church is powerless. Let me tell you why church is anemic. Let me tell you why the church in 2020 is weak. Because it has sons and daughters who get dirty in the hog lot of the world, in the hog lot of promiscuity, in the hog lot of lust, in the hog lot of desire, in the hog lot of lies, in the hog lot of bitterness, in the hog lot of addiction. And then they're standing there smelling like the very thing they crawled out of and they can't wrap their mind around the very idea that a loving, all-knowing God would want anything to do with them. Why would he let me on the property, much less he wants me to still be in the family? And this church, like everyone in America, is filled with people who have sex before marriage. And then they think, well, God won't touch me. They have addictions, and they have pasts, and they have resumes that aren't. We're talking about in a rap sheet and records and and and, and they, they got all kinds of scars to show where they've been. And and here's the thing: what, what really hurts a lot of people in church is we get up and we talk about people's past. Well, the reality is, and, we, and we say, like, hey, God's delivered you from that past, you're no longer bound by that past. What if your past is still your present? Like, what if what if what if what if you what if you do worship on this stage, but you got some crap in the closet? What if you do serve in this church and, and, and you're not perfect? Let's say you're not batting a thousand. You know the most interesting thing about the story? When the boy came back and he began to spill his self-condemnation rehearsal, Daddy won't hear none of it. He didn't even acknowledge him. He's done kissed his face off, and he's not even acknowledging what his son is saying. And he looks at the servants and says, Go get the best robe. I don't want him looking like Hugh Hebner. I want the best one we got. Go bring that robe of royalty and let's wrap it around this mud covered kid. Go get a ring to signify he's still part of this family. Go get some shoes, throw them on them. Bear- the very feet that walked off this property and plunge themselves into the abyss of the foreign country. Let's put some shoes on his feet. In fact, we're going to throw ourselves a party. Let's kill the fatted calf. Oh, bless God, we ain't having no salad. No, 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 we're going to get some twice-baked potatoes. Some of Grandmama's sweet tea. We're going to get some cat head biscuits, honey, and gravy, and we're going to, bless God, get some macaroni cheese, pull it out 10 inches above the pan. The cheese is still stringing. We're going to take the fatted calf, that one that's been up on the backside of the barn. We've been feeding him protein shakes, and and we've been loading him up with carbs and massaging that joker. We're going to kill that one. We're going to have that one for dinner. Bring the best we got. Because this don't miss, I'm done, don't miss this. Here's a homecoming reality. Here's the reality. He said, this, this, that religious crowd's dropping the rocks, walking off. Amen. Can't wrap the mind around it. Why would you want him back? Why would you let him back? Robe, ring, shoes. And the calf cooking in the kitchen. And he says, This, my son. This is my kid. (laughs) This will change your world if you ever get this. You'll stop feeling like an unworthy church member. You stop feeling guilty every time you come here. You stop. You're my kid. You're my kid when you're sober. You're my kid when you're drunk. You're my kid when you're clean, you're my kid when you're high. You're my kid when you're sexually pure and you're my kid when you're sexually perverted. You're still my kid. Don't matter how much mud got on you, you're my kid. Don't know how many corn husks you add for dinner? You're still my kid. Don't matter how many brothels No matter how many prostitutes, doesn't matter. You're still my kid. I don't care. I, I don't care. I care because of what it does to you, but I don't care in that you are my kid. And there's nothing that's ever going to change the fact of ownership here. I can smell it on you. I can see it on you. I know it's there. But you're still my kid. my kid. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. Do I agree with what you're doing? No. Did you take advantage of me? Yeah. Are you taking my grace for granted? Absolutely. Am I okay with what you're doing? Of course not. But there's nothing you've ever done and nothing you did or nothing you're going to do that's going to keep you from being my kid. You notice this this parable right here is talking about a son or a daughter. It's talking about someone in the family. You can't, in good faith to the scripture, take this story and preach it to someone who's not saved. You can make application, but in in the interpretation, you can't take this and preach it to a lost person. You can't. Who is he talking to? A son. I've heard preachers take this and they preach it to unbelievers. Can unbelievers get saved? Of course. When an unbeliever, someone who's not been born again, hears of the father's love to his own despite their disobedience and rebellion, that's going to make someone want to get saved. But this is aimed at everybody in this room that has been born again is in the family. And many of us have done this. Many of us have done this. And we could stand and testify and rejoice that we're still in the family. Yes. And we're still his kid. Absolutely. Come back. Yeah, right. yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't. He don't want nothing to do with me. He, he, can't, he can't use me. There's nothing for me to do. There's, there's no place for me anymore. He packed up my room. He took all my pictures down. I don't have a place at the table anymore. Come back, come back. You don't know who I slept with. Come back. You don't know what I did. Come back. You don't know what I drank. Come back. You don't know what I shot my arm. You don't know what I smoked. You don't know what I inhaled. You don't know what I saw. You don't know what I did. You don't know how much money I spent on. what if the worst thing you've ever done is not the worst thing you're ever going to do? Some of us talk about our past with such a trophy mentality. Look where I was, and I'll no longer be that person anymore. What if you lose your freaking crap and your mind in 10 years, and you go double that? Worst sins I've ever committed after becoming a son. God, there's some people in this room that can agree with me on that, can't you? Some of y'all in this room. And that self-condemnation always makes you want to stay outside of the family. I'll just settle out here. There's no place for me. He doesn't want me. And he's running at you. He's running at you in mercy. With a robe in one hand and a ring in the other. Hollering for the servants to bring the shoes. Crank that thing up on broil, baby. We got a party to have. We're going to cook this thing. Get it ready. Get it ready. Get it ready. Get it ready. And it says they began to be merry. Bible says there is rejoicing in the presence of angels. Come on, Jake, help me close. There's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner that repents. Y'all do know what that says, right? Rejoicing in the presence of angels. All the angels are so excited, and they're like, yeah, no, no. no. I don't. The Bible says in Peter that we have a salvation that the angels desire to look into. The angels have been assigned as ministering servants to us. Sometimes I think I aggravate the mess out of my angel. I bet my angel's like, I'm going to kill that joker. God, let me kill him, Please. Who's in the presence of angels? Could it be that the father throws a shindig of a celebration every time one of his kids comes back home? I don't want to beat a dead horse repreach re-preach the same theme, but I'm going to tell you something. This whole thing that started unraveling with our world back in February and March, it has messed up some good, solid Christian people. There's a lot. Look, our, we have a young church, and there was a lot of people that were really, really dependent on, on eating when they're here. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't have a solid walk with God. And they lost their emotional and their spiritual equilibrium when all of this happened in the world. And they weren't able to come over here on this property and get spoon-fed and hand-fed. And a lot of them, it, that, that thing turned into a ticket. It turned into a ticket of excuses and a ticket to distance themselves from God and a ticket to get far from God, and they're starving to death out there in the foreign country right now. And I've watched, I've watched over the last four weeks since we came back, I've watched as I preach, and I've watched people, they're starving for the Father's affection. But they feel like they've lost it. They feel like they messed up while they are out there. They feel like they've drifted away from God and they can't get it back. I can't put into words how I want to say this to you, but your pastor was a dirty son that came home. I'm a dirt. I'm a dirty kid that came back. I, I was I was a hog lot ridden kid who came back and said, "If you'll take me back," and I couldn't even get it out because. And I'm like, what, 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 what you, you just want me to be a servant and, and just you, just look at me, look at me like a servant. No, 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 I got a church for you to pastor. I got a word for you to preach. I got, I got a life for you to live. I got kids for you to raise. I got a marriage for you to, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. But, 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 but. I know it's, it's not fun to do church like this all the time. But don't you? Don't you, don't you remember? Don't you, don't you know? Where, 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 do you not know? <laughs> That's when Jesus says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not remember? Have you already forgotten? Come on, stand up with me.